Hi, everybody. Together with Apple Books, welcome again to the Oprah's Book Club podcast in our series on Isabel Wilkerson's magnificent book, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents. Today, we're talking about Pillar 6 and Pillar 7. Isabel titled Pillar 6, Dehumanization and Stigma, and the seventh pillar is called Terror as Enforcement, Cruelty as a Means of Control. So. Let's talk about dehumanization and how it worked. Yeah. Dehumanization is a fundamental mechanism that allows everything else that happens in a caste system to occur. Once you have dehumanized an entire group, you don't have to focus on an individual. There's not this focus on the individual because if you dehumanize the entire group, then everyone will be of the same mind about how anyone in that group should be treated. And there were many ways of, first of all, inserting or creating the illusion that human beings were actually not human in all of the various hierarchies that I'm looking at. When you think about what happened in Germany, for example, the idea of when people arrived at those concentration camps, they would shave the head, they would eliminate all of the distinguishing characteristics that would allow an individual to stand out from others. They would then give them uniforms, the coarsest, hor most horrible, often ill-fitting uniforms, which would also emphasize that they were not even fit to be clothed in certain kinds of attire and uniforms. And then they were no longer to respond to necessarily to their name, but to a number. There was a number that they had to memorize. And of course, this happened in the 20th century. But going back in the United States history, again, for 246 years of enslavement, before there was even a United States of America, there was an effective effort to dehumanize those who were being put at the very bottom forced to work for free for as many as 18 hours a day, people not realizing how long their days were. There was a law that had to be put in place to limit it to 15 hours a day because that's how long they were being worked for longer than that. And many of the things that they did was they were forced to no longer respond to the name that they might have had before, particularly those arriving directly from the continent. And then over time, often being given names that were also demeaning, uh, names that might be given to pets, names that were mocking, like Caesar or Sambo, the words and names that they might have been given. And then, of course, they also, this idea of clothing, of who could be clothed in something that was of high quality and would be radiant and sophisticated. In some of the states in the South, there were rules and laws about the, the specific kind of cloth that they would be permitted to wear wow. to make sure that there's this reminder at every turn to reinforce the dehumanization. Often the clothing did not fit, purposely not fitting. And so all of this would mm -hmm. reinforce the imagery that they already were less than human. This, in turn, made possible or encouraged any atrocity that could be imagined against these individuals because they were not seen as human to begin with. I think that there's nothing more dehumanizing than lynching. You can't get more dehumanizing than that. People may be shocked to read, I think a lot of people are shocked to read that there used to be lynching postcards to commemorate the spectacle. And going to a lynching was like going to a festival, y'all. American families would send each other postcards of the event. Hanging black bodies became fodder and entertainment. I mean, thousands. What I didn't realize is that thousands and thousands of people would come out for some of the lynchings, like 10,000, 15,000 people. And that, you know, I have a lot of books of African-American history, and I've seen those 
postcards replicated where the people have the kids on their shoulders and they're posing by the hanging burn bodies. Explain the history of that, Isabel. The history of that could only occur if the targets, the victims, were so thoroughly dehumanized that the people who were participating didn't see themselves as doing anything wrong at all. In fact, they mm -hmm. would brag about it. They were proud of what they were participating in. There would be photographers at these events to take pictures of people as if this were a prom or a wedding. These were things that people were not ashamed of. And it shows how very thoroughly dehumanized individuals had become, the entire group had become, in the eyes of far too many Americans. Again, well into the 20th century, because these lynchings lasted into the time of, of the civil rights era. So it's not ancient history. And certainly not ancient history, because as Melba so beautifully articulated yesterday, that when we all witnessed the knee on George Floyd's neck, and the police officer staring back, you know, looking into the camera, that what you felt there was the sense of, I can get away with this. And it felt like we were watching a public lynching before our eyes. You heard on previous episodes, Melba was one of the Little Rock Nine, a group of black students who enrolled at the formerly all-white Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas at a time when it was unheard of. And a short history lesson here on those of you that don't know it, the governor of Arkansas called in the National Guard to block the black students from integrating the school. And then the president at the time, Dwight Eisenhower, sent in federal troops to escort them, the Little Rock Nine, Melba, part of that group, into the school. It drew national attention at the time to the civil rights movement and Melba went on to earn graduate degrees, become a college professor. In 1996, we reunited seven of the Little Rock Nine on the Oprah Winfrey Show, and Melba was there. And Melba, you witnessed a lynching when you were just around four or five years old. Can you set the scene for us? You're sitting in church, big church, little church. You have to understand the setting here is that for African-Americans, for me as a child, Church was everything, okay? If there's no movie, no restaurant, and nothing else to do, then what is church? It's everything. Yeah. So I would go to church out of nights a week. I'd be in church six of them, okay? And so <laughs> this was a weekend night where we would have soup. It wouldn't be that we'd be having a full service every night. Some nights the ladies would sew blankets and the, the maids and white ladies with kitchens would come together and they'd quilt and they'd have cooking they teach you how to do your income tax if you had to do anything about any papers to fill out for the government, if you had official things to do. So church was everything. To me, as a child who was by five, already frightened of breathing, church was safe. It was the one place on earth that I was safe. We had this like soup on Friday and Saturday night where you'd bring your own pot of soup, you'd bring soup, and everybody else would bring soup, and we'd gather at this church. I remember walking through the woods holding my grandma's hand and she's holding this iron pot with this handle on it. And I can smell the soup and we go in and everybody deposits their soup in a separate room. This was a small church. And you know, across the back it had this like wooden thing that goes across the back and then it lets up and comes down in metal rods. That's how you close the back door. And so that never was closed inside or out because uh, we as African-Americans wouldn't all come right on time. You'd leave <laughs> that open until about 
six thirty or seven or seven thirty or eight. But folks, would be <laughs> and so we were in there, and we were uh, sitting down in my little pew with holding my dolly and just getting ready to be loved. That was my love, and that was safety. And all of a sudden, I hear this this wooden thing go down, and it's going down too early, and I know something's wrong. And I turn around and look back, and it is these guys in sheets, and one of them has a long, long double-barrel shotgun. And my grandma, at this point, puts both her hands on either side of my body and says, don't move, don't look up, do not breathe, don't look. And I'm, I'm thinking, now what? So she said, look down at your dog, take care of your dolly and just don't move. And so what they do is they come in, they get Mr. I'm gonna, I named him Mr. Harvey, because that family still exists. And I don't want to identify the family. They threw a rope up over the, the church. Uh, there were, you know, these rods that go back and forth, wooden. And they threw a rope over it and they, and they commenced to prop him up and, and, and hang him. And, and the thing that I remember most is my grandma said, don't look up, don't look up, don't say anything, don't move if you move. And my grandma recognized at the time one of the men wearing the sheets because she'd worked for them. She said, shut up and don't say anything. And she would just whisper and her hands were shaking so bad. But what I heard was this man gagging and I could look over and I could see just his feet wiggling. And to this moment at 78 years of age, I still have dreams where I hear it and see it. One of the things that I became after that was angry at black men. Look, there, there were men in there, there were a whole lot of men. Why, why didn't you all run towards the one man with the gun? There were like four or five of those dudes that had guns. I was angry, I was so angry then, I was hurt, I was frightened. And the one thing I knew for certain then was that the adults that I depended on to protect me could not protect me. Because then there was the process of getting to the back of the church no, no, don't go back, go forward, go up and go to the right, go out that door, get out. If you get out, okay, that's good. Because they could come back. Maybe they'd come back. And they warned us before they walked out, don't talk about this, don't say anything about this. And here's the thing, look, that was a period of time, 1946, when you don't call the police. You don't call anybody. You don't call the undertaker, they were, you know, not around. Somebody has to come back and get that body and prepare it for whatever they're gonna do. And my grandmother was involved in that. Yes, they were hangings. Yes, my grandmother had saved some of those cars. Black people, thank you very much. Black people, our own people were asked to bake pies for that. Bring your pies and sell them on the side. Thank wow. you. And, and she talks about the fact that afterwards, those bodies were cut up and sold. Thank you very much. Part of the rope was sold. And that wasn't the only lynching that I got close to seeing, being a part of, standing in line for, like uh, on the on the very campus of Central High School, they hung a rope. And they, they hanged an effigy and they said, next thing we want to do to get rid of the black students is we're going to hang them. And so for me, this was an incredible dehumanizing, but there's so many. I would like to ask her about the turn of the century. Are you aware that in the turn of the century was a whole school, people get degrees in it, of advertising that the entire focus of advertising in a certain period was to dehumanize African-Americans. You want to speak to that, Isabel? Absolutely. It shows to me the totalitarian nature of the caste system that seeps so far that it trains people who are in the grips of it to not 
resist because resistance would be too dangerous or resistance seems futile or resistance seems as if it would not achieve what people would want to. And it's about survival, uh, I think, at the end. This is not to, to justify any behavior, but ultimately it's about survival, survival to be able to have another generation to live. I would say that at the same time, that experience that Melba has described so just shockingly, stunningly, just wrenchingly, at the same time, how is it that people are, are able to have this level of dehumanization and distance from their fellow members of the species? At that same time, children who were in the dominant caste were being trained and desensitized to the humanity of their fellows because they were at amusement parks, for example. There were references, I didn't know that this existed before doing the search. There were games in which children were trained to fling bean bags at the caricatured heads images of black people. So they were being trained as four, five, six, seven years old to see violence against people who were black as not just normal but amusement, as a game, as something to enjoy. There also were these son of ham rides or amusements in which people would compete for the right to hurl baseballs at the head of a black person and the black person would be plunged into water. This was amusement for people in the dominant caste around the country, not just in the South, but around the country, which is all part of the way in service of dehumanization so that any atrocity that could be imagined would be seen as not just okay, but in fact fitting and amusing and part of what one did to prove that they were a card-carrying or upstanding member of the dominant caste as it was envisioned at that time. Well, in Pillar 7, which is a continuation, terror as enforcement, cruelty as a means of control. You start by saying this on page 151, you say that the only way to keep an entire group of sentient beings in an artificially fixed place beneath all others and beneath their own talents is with violence and terror, psychological and physical to preempt resistance before it can be imagined, to preempt resistance before it can be imagined. That's much of what we heard Melba talking about, because to come into your safe space, to come into the church, I'd never heard of that. I'd heard of people hanging people out on the church lawn. I'd never heard of people coming into the church to hang somebody. That is to make sure that nothing happens that you could even imagine resisting, right? Yeah. I have specific stories that are very, very hard to read. Quite frankly, they're just stomach-churning to read. And yet, these things were a regular, daily, built-in part of what the slave owners felt was necessary in order to keep people in a fixed place during enslavement in particular. And then thereafter, when there was this fear that people could begin to imagine themselves as something other than what the caste system had deemed them to be. And there are so many examples of the kinds of torture, the kinds of things that went before the, the lynchings. We often see the picture of, of the final act of it, but, but there's things that happened before. There was a psychological terror of being exposed to this kind of violence, which the goal would be preemptive right. action against it. Before you could even imagine right. doing something, you would be frightened from doing so. And that's the power yeah. that... And that's why they did it in front of the church. And th that's why what Melba described to us earlier, doing it in the church in front of everybody, 
or dragging a body through town lets everybody know if you're even thinking of getting out of line, this is what could happen to you. You write on page yeah. 153 that the country allowed uh, most any atrocity to be inflicted on the black body. And you describe many atrocities with a clear eye and as you said, in great detail. But describe what happened to our society because I keep wanting to make the connection because you know there are people listening right now saying that was then, what's that got to do with now? What happened to our society because this brutalization was normalized? Because it was normalized, then it's not seen as extraordinary when something atrocious happens to a person who is you know, born to what had been the subordinated caste for so long. People can become desensitized to the pain. In fact, there are studies that show that when people are exposed to individuals who are experiencing what would be painful, like a needle going into skin, they respond autonomically with more of a sense of empathy and fear and wincing when that skin is white as opposed to when it's darker skin. This actually accounts wow. for, it's not just about the race of the person, it's not just white people who feel this way, or who respond this way, I should say. This is autonomic, this is unconscious bias that's beneath the surface of the subconscious. So this means that this is one's natural reaction. We've been so exposed to the dehumanization that we then naturally, autonomically respond with a greater sense of empathy for people who empathy. are in the dominant group because we've been trained to do Interesting. that. I would also say that we should remind ourselves that with these, with the lynchings, for example, people got advance warning. There were advertisements in the newspaper. In fact, the lynchings were often held up. They were, they were delayed until enough people could come in. There were excursion trains to get people to these lynchings. There was a routine. And then finally, the additional dehumanization, bringing in the dehumanization and the stigma together, is that as a form of psychological terror, too, usually the family or an African-American undertaker, someone in the black community, would be the one tasked with, told when it was okay, when they would be permitted to come and take the body down. There was a ritual to these spectacles. Thousands of people coming in, photographs being taken to mark the occasion, and then after that was done, then and only then would the family or black people be tasked with removing their loved one a further reminder of the dehumanization and the stigma that was attached to the rung on the ladder that they were uh, assigned to. Anu was asking in an, another episode about what keeps you going and makes you feel that you're good enough. When I think about my ancestors not far removed or people in my family not far removed in the family of black people, having to endure that and having no means of fighting back, no means of resistance. When I think about that, that makes me angry, it makes me sad, but it also fills me with conviction to not let any one of those deaths be in vain. It fills me with a sense of, well, then I must do better. I must carry on and do better. Ben, your hand's been up for a while. Yeah, we're talking so much about the past with present consequence and how we've seen these things evolving to get to where we are today. And I think the context that I'm living in is just a clear example of so many of these principles that we've been talking about. I'm a pastor in a denomination that's almost 50 years old. We were founded in 1973. And I'm not gonna say many or most, but some of our founders were segregationists. And that's a part of our history that is only just now kind of coming to light and wrestling with. But now after 50 years, 50 years later, 
of the nearly 5,000 pastors that we have in our denomination, 1.2% are African-American, 51. And the attempts to try and address diversity and reconciliation and grow in this area have been extremely difficult. And since 2016, especially, of the few African-Americans who exist in denominations like mine, there's been a mass exodus from our churches because it's dehumanizing, it's tiring. It's dehumanizing to speak up and say Black Lives Matter and then to be shut down and say, no, all lives matter, right? It's, it's dehumanizing to speak up and say, can we show empathy for what's happening? And someone says, uh, well, let's wait till we have all the facts, right? How do we begin to address this dehumanizing context where people have been shut down, made to feel like they have no voice, so powerless today? Uh, you know, if I feel powerless, I can't imagine being in that 1% number in my context. So is there anything we can do or do we just gotta start over? You know? That is why people such as yourself are so critical to this awakening that we seem to be on the cusp of. It cannot fall to the people who have to have the multiple burdens of both having to exist in the world, seeking to take care of their families, and do all the things that anyone else might have to do, in addition to having to explain, defend, try to share and enlighten what their experiences have been like. It's just too big of a burden. And also, African Americans, for example, are a small percentage of this country, 13, 14 percent. It cannot fall to that minority of people. The minority of people who have been subject for so long anyway, cannot be the ones alone to be able to fix this or to bear the continuing burden of explaining it. People are, are needing to rely upon those who have, as you have, taken the steps to study and to learn with a willing heart and open mind to be able to look past what we think we have been told and, been, and what we've been taught and to be able to be that bridge. This is where allies come in. This is where allies are necessary. We need to have people, not just one group of people, but all human beings responding to this with a sense of outrage and human empathy in order to push through. Yes, Mel. Melba. One of the things when I was in the Rome South is we marched, we had to do, the Jews would come out and help us and they would get in line with us. Police are much less likely, statistically, to shoot into a crowd where they're seeing white faces. And so the only reason, in my estimation, that these most recent marches were so successful and so attention-getting was so many other faces in there besides our brown one. And so that, to me, is just so important. Yes, we need help. Yes, we have to join together. It isn't going to happen unless our brothers and sisters of varying complexions, particularly the white ones, come with us, because you're like our insulation. You know, no police is going to shoot into a huge crowd of white people. It won't happen. You might get your cousin or your brother. But as long as we march together and alone, we are much more subject. So I'm sure that watching George Floyd was very triggering for you because, as you mentioned, watching the police officer's face and seeing that knee on the neck for eight minutes, it, it, it must have been triggering for you and reminding you of the little girl hearing the gurgling sounds in church so many years ago. It tore up my life. I was in the middle of writing a book. I couldn't write anymore because I felt so hopeless. You lose your hope. So every time something like this happens, the reason I'm so into it is I snap backwards. Am I there again? No, I'm not. There's Oprah on that screen. Look at Oprah. She's cool. You've been very important in my life. I watched every single show that you ever came <laughs> over because you were very important in my life because you were like a link, a substance. Like, okay, she's there. I'm here. It's okay. 
we have some power. Because you understand my whole feeling about life is I, as a black person, don't have much power. So yes, it is very helpful to have had white people marching. And yes, every time somebody gets pulled, when that man pulled that black man's shirt and pulled him backwards and shot him in the spine, that is another one of my relatives being hanged. That is the times I walk down the street, big signs on the street. Negroes cannot walk in this area at night, okay? And so th that's all of that lack of power coming to fruition again for me. And I have to stop and tell myself, no, but it's 2020. You have a little bit more power than you used to. Dial up somebody you know, some relative that's a police somewhere, call your white family in, in Northern California, do something, you know. But there is that moment when I think, okay, if it happens to him, it can happen to me. If it happens to him, it can happen to my son. And so that's what that link is. So your whole thing about tentacles, oh yeah. They reach out today and tomorrow. And they reach out in so many ways. They gave that white man permission to put his knee on Floyd's neck. And that's what I saw. And that's what drove me nuts for a couple of weeks. I actually had to call up a therapist and get somebody to talk to me because it made me nuts. The look on his face, I will never. I would think that, that it just re-triggers all of that trauma. One of our readers, Kim, is the creative director for a nonprofit in New York. And you say that Isabel wrote with such an honesty, Kim, about the violence and abuse against black women that you've never seen before in other history books. So you have a question for Isabel? Yeah, I'm loving this whole conversation. But what I really liked about your book was that you do talk about the rape and breeding and the treatment of black women, which I think is a huge uh, crime uh, and unfortunate thing that happened to us then that still reverberates today. And so for me, the question is, how did white women tolerate seeing the rape and murder and breeding of black women and children by their husbands and sons. Was it only fear and privilege? And is privilege stronger than fear? And so when I ask myself that question, I say, yeah, privilege is stronger than fear because most people are afraid of death and dying and torture and all this other stuff. But there are some people who aren't, you know, those are the people with courage. And so I guess what I really want to ask you is how do people do and witness these things? How do they live with themselves? Well, I think that denial is a powerful drug. Denial is a powerful drug. There is uh, quite a bit that's being learned now. There's this outstanding book called They Were Her Property by Stephanie Jones Rogers. And it talks about how white women slave owners were far more involved in the institution of slavery than we have commonly thought. They were the inheritors through their fathers or their husbands when the husbands passed away. And because it's an institution that's part of a caste system, a hierarchy, that essentially relied on violence in order to maintain and keep people in their place, something that was an unnatural place to be, then they too engaged in violence. There's some really gut-wrenching, horrifying examples of things that some of the slave owners who happened to have been women participated in. And so in some ways, again, it's not about what does this particular person or do in a situation? Why would we say white male slave owners would do this or do that? It has much more to do with what do people do when they're in a certain situation? And so people in the situation 
of a structure in which they are born to the dominant caste and then uh, believe themselves to be inherently superior to other groups and have so dehumanized the other groups that almost anything could be done to them. The women would be no different than the men were because this is a position in a hierarchy. It's a structural role that they're playing. And in order to achieve their goal of keeping control over the people and managing their property, that is what they would do. And I, I would recommend reading that book for greater understanding of what is possible. These are human reactions to one's situation in that hierarchy. And, and they were not as different from the men as we might hope to be. That was one of the stunning things about to, to discover. Also, because they would have felt powerless too. Would they not have felt powerless? I mean, women didn't have any power at that time. Women didn't have, obviously, the right to vote at that time. Absolutely. Wouldn't they have felt that they had to do whatever their husbands wanted? And the dehumanization had already occurred. And so they were just falling in line, doing what they were told or obeying the, the hierarchy of men and women, Absolutely. whatever that is. Patriarchy. You know, that's why I make mention of the, the idea of a cast in a play. Everybody has a role to play. And so the women in, in a patriarchy such as that, where they did not have power, they were one step removed from being property themselves, if they themselves did not own property, and many of them did actually own the enslaved people that fell under their purview. But they would have fallen in place with what was necessary in their view to survive in that system. One of the sad consequences of that is that they would then take out their frustration and anger on black women who might have been uh, raped or forced into sexual relations with the husbands of these women or the sons or uncles of these women, they would take it out on black women as well. There were no protections for enslaved people, none at all. And anything could be done to them. And with dehumanization, nothing was seen as a crime. It wasn't a crime to do these things against people in the subordinate caste. It was, it was literally not a crime. You literally could do anything you wanted to. You could do anything you wanted to. Anything. Because if they weren't considered human, if we weren't considered human, then you could do anything you wanted to. Yes. Thank you, Melba, so much for sharing in such an open, candid way with us about sitting in that church and the soup and the lynching. Thank you, Kim and Isabel, of course. Thank you again. Next time we'll be discussing our last pillar, Pillar 8, which is titled Inherent Superiority versus Inherent Inferiority. That's what it's all about. Bye, everybody. Till next time. Whether you want to read or listen to the audiobook, Get your copy on Apple Books. It's easy. The Apple Books app is already on your phone and your iPad. And then join us on Instagram and Facebook at Oprah's Book Club to discuss and connect with other readers. And in October, make sure to head to Apple TV Plus to watch my interview with Isabel about why she was inspired to embark on the journey to write cast. Mm -hmm.